Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This second episode discusses how church communities can play their part in shaping and campaigning for a green recovery to address climate change. Well, welcome to our CTBI webinar tonight. I'm pleased tonight to be joined um, by Caroline Pomeroy and James Buchanan, who will be sharing this evening um, on our topic of climate change, the church and a green recovery. Um, so just to, to start, I'd like to introduce Caroline. Uh, Caroline is the uh, Director of Climate Stewards, which is part of the Arosha UK network. Um, and their key message is to reduce what you can and offset the rest. Climate Stewards provides online tools and advice to individuals, businesses, NGOs, and churches on how to calculate and understand carbon footprints and reduce them, as well as um, offsetting emissions uh, through community-based carbon mitigation projects um, around or across the developing world. Um, Caroline is also an environmental advisor to the Diocese of Bath and Wells Somerset um, and helps churches there to embed creation care into their teaching and practice working towards their environmental strategy to deliver net zero by 2030, as well as having an MSc in climate change impacts and sustainability. She also uh, will mention tonight her involvement in the cycle to Paris um, in 2015 before the COP21 talks. So looking forward to hearing from Caroline this evening on the topic of um, putting our own house in order uh, what individuals and churches can do um, to demonstrate their climate commitments and touching on some of the tools that are available for them. So with no further ado, I'll pass over to, to Caroline. Thank you. Uh, thanks, James, for the introduction. And it's great to be with you tonight. Um, I'm going to share my screen in a moment uh, and uh, run through some slides with you. Um, I hope that you can see uh, a bit of me and a bit of a screen, I think. <laughs> So, um, well, thanks, James, for the introduction. Uh, and just, yes, you touched on our, our trip to Paris. Um, James Buchanan is also going to, uh, was also in Paris a few years ago, 2015, uh, the Climate Talks COP21. Uh, I was, I live and work in Somerset. So a group of us cycled from Wells Cathedral in Somerset to Notre Dame in Paris as part of something called the Pilgrimage to Paris. And when we arrived, uh, we together with others, we presented a petition to Christina Figueres, the um, person who was chairing the climate talks uh, as part of a group of uh, faith groups, as you can see there in the bottom, represented on that stage. I think, James, you were there too. Um, it was a very exciting moment and uh, it was a very moving moment because uh, at the end of it, uh, Christina Figueres burst into tears, James, I'm sure you remember. Um, and she just said, you know, you, you guys have done the walking and the talking and the praying and the fasting um and the gathering of petitions and now it's up to me to deliver the results and and as many of you will recall those paris climate talks were very significant and very um uh successful uh they they achieved a, a commitment to uh keep global emissions 
uh, at um, no more than two degrees, in fact, with an ambition to, to limit that to 1.5 degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels. So, and afterwards, she wrote to uh, all those who had, had prayed and fasted, uh, many, many of whom would, would call themselves Christians from all around the world. And she said, thank you. you know, thank you to all of you, all of civil society, but particularly to the faith groups for the part in which you played in the run up to these talks uh, in terms of um, exerting an influence on your legislators, the people who are, who were then, uh, so the people who were sitting in the talks uh, ha ha were aware of the pressure that was being put on them from, from civil society and particularly from churches. So that's kind of a bit of a backdrop to, to me and really to possibly uh, why I think it's so important that churches get involved. I think it's, it's, it's central to our faith as Christians to care for, care for the world, to care for creation. And I think we can have a huge impact. Uh, and we saw that at Paris. As many of you will know, um, the COP26, the, the, climate, the next big round of climate talks, which was due to be in Glasgow this year, has been delayed until next year. Um, but uh, we're looking forward to that. And I think the next year is critical in terms of our action to, um, to contribute to that. Uh, so I wanted this evening, James is going to talk quite a lot about, um, about divestment. Uh, but I want to talk about what we as churches can do in this terms of the green, the green recovery. What, what can we do to put our own house in order? It feels very important that we, we lead from the front, that we walk the talk. So what can we do as churches to, to walk the talk here? Uh, just to, again, just in a, as, as introduction, last year was a big year. Um, we had 2015 in Paris. And for many of us in the global climate or the, the, the national climate movement, we feel that 2019 was a real turning point. You will remember um, the school strikes for, for, for climate for Greta Thunberg and, and all of the others who, who striked. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, that's then, and there they were in um, Oxford Circus, uh, the sort of the, the high point of consumerism, perhaps. David Attenborough did his thing about climate change this sort of this time, Easter last year. Um, and then later in the year, continued um, natural um, uh, responses to climate change, well, disasters really. Uh, and th this is a photograph from Sydney uh, around about Christmas time when we had the terrible fires. So people, over the period, over the course of 2019, it felt like the world woke up to the, the seriousness and the importance of tackling climate change. It was a huge year. And, and now, of course, this year, well, we all know where we are now. Yeah. Um, uh, the challenge is how do we how do we take forward that momentum? I think from 2019 uh, into beyond the post the post uh, coronavirus, the post pandemic, the green recovery. So soon after, and and probably um, uh, or very much contributed to by that, the Church of England uh, declared in February a, a an ambition to be carbon neutral by 2030. Again, many of you will be, have been involved in that, perhaps, or certainly been aware of what was going on. Uh, you will recall that at these, in the run-up to the General Synod, a huge amount of work had been done to prepare, for, to prepare a paper, a proposal, uh, that the church should commit itself to being um, carbon neutral by 2045. Um, in the end, uh, there was a very heated debate. I watched it uh, live on, um, on my screen, and... and there was a real groundswell of opinion that, that 2045 was not ambitious enough and the, and the Church of England committed itself to becoming carbon neutral by 2030. It's a hugely ambitious target uh, and you know, the, <laughs> the challenge is, is to deliver that. Um, but I, it was felt that without 
without ambition, um, that they would get nowhere. So that was a really significant um, starting point, I think, to this year in terms of climate ambition from the churches in the UK. So that, that was the Church of England uh, in February this year. So the question then is, is how to deliver that. <laughs> um, I myself, I'm an Anglican, um, although I've worshipped in many different uh, denominations, but I'm currently involved with the Diocese of Bath and Wells, as James mentioned. Um, and the conversation obviously immediately turned to, to how do we achieve that? This graph um, is, is one I've made up myself effectively, but it's based on a piece of work that the church uh, did in fact Leeds Diocese did uh, a couple of years ago they did um, some work trying to start uh, getting a feel for what is the carbon footprint of a church uh, a church as an organization so the building and the, and the things that go on within the church and they they came up with they did a lot of work they had some spreadsheets they got people to measure and count their carbon footprint from different activities um, and they had sort of two categories of church. Uh, so there were lots of churches, obviously, but they sort of two sort of example churches. And one was church, this was church A, which is a, probably a big, fairly lively, probably urban church with a carbon footprint of 60 tonnes per year. So the challenge is then, you know, how, how, how then does this church with a carbon footprint of 60 tonnes from its, from its energy consumption, from its uh, transport emissions, from all the other bits and pieces that go on, in terms of the life of the church, so that would be food and waste and resources that they're using. How do they get down and at what point could they call themselves carbon neutral or net zero? At what point do they reach net zero? So there we are, We've, we're starting in 2020 uh, with a footprint of, of 60 tonnes. Um, one might imagine that, they, that each year they, they would do very, they'll do, be doing different things um, to, to, they might change their boiler, they might insulate part of the church, they might cut down on the drafts, they might do a whole series of different things, which little by little, hopefully will reduce their carbon footprint. When they get to 2030, they will still probably have some carbon footprint, it's very unlikely that they will have got to zero. And that's the point at which um, it seems to be generally agreed that um, churches will be encouraged or obliged to to offset the rest to do something about neutralizing as it were the, the remaining carbon footprint the, there's a, there's a, this is a, this is a live debate this hasn't been this is not in, written in tablets of stone yet but this is the kind of conversation that's going on amongst uh, the anglican church about how to actually achieve net zero and what does that look like and what might they need to do having got having reduced as far as they can what do they do with the rest of it um, so that's just a little sketch that we drew up as 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 an idea of how how they could calculate or how they could how that progression might might be seen. It, obviously, it won't be it's unlikely to be in equal steps like that, um, but that's the trajectory that we want to see. This I don't expect you to read all of this, uh, but this is a document that Church of England has just produced, and at the bottom I've put the web link for it. So this is a practical path to net zero carbon for our churches, which you can find online. I think it's a really helpful first starting point for churches. How do we as a church community start to put our own house in order? It, as you can see, it's a sort of traffic light system, the green and then the orange and then the red. Um, the simple things are in green. The things that probably won't cost anything and may well save you money are highlighted in green. Um, and they're in different categories. I, I, I'm not going to read through it now, but it, I just want you to, to be aware that this document exists and I think it's a very helpful um, starting point, not just, it's freely available, you don't have to be an Anglican to, to read it. Um, 
and then going through from the green the simple to simple actions um, you can see that the next the next category so you start with the dark green the lighter green are things with a reasonably fast payback for a church with medium energy uses so the church which is in regular use then the paler green category c on the right hand side getting to zero these are bigger and more complex projects for example draft proofing double glazing insulation a lot of them will not be appropriate for many um, ancient buildings all of these obviously need to be done in, in close consultation with your your architect or your surveyor and, and people who understand the building itself and then the yellow ones are, my, are things that we might only do if, for example, we are reordering the church or if the boiler breaks down, in which case we might replace it. And the red ones at the end are, they, they, they categorise those as by exception. So um, these are things which, for example, installing solar panels. These are, this is not the first port of call. This is if you have the time, the resources, if, if it fits with the church's plans, that makes sense to do. But there are some much easier things to do. For example, switching to buying renewable energy, which you can do straight away. So it's a kind of a hierarchy of activities that churches might consider in, in, in order to move themselves down that, that scale from, from a high, high carbon footprint to a much lower carbon footprint. So that's the Church of England, that's where it's at. Uh, it's got a lot of work to do, um, but the, the, the first, the first um, activity is to start to understand carbon footprints and to measure them. Um, other church denominations have also made um, statements publicly about their commitment to reduce their carbon footprint. The Methodist Church has said in July 2019 at their synod, they urged the government to retrieve net zero before 2050 and they encouraged churches to sign up for eco-church or eco-congregation in Scotland and then on a bigger scale eco-circuits and eco-districts. The United Reformed Church has pledged to shrink its carbon footprint um, and the Catholic Church last year uh, switched an enormous number of its buildings to renewable energy and that was one of part of its commitment to reduce its carbon footprint. So those are the, the sort of public pledges um, most many other denominations including those have made commit have made comments about the need to be good stewards but those are the specific pledges about the buildings um, and the the churches themselves and what they want to do to put their own houses in order so i'm having given you a little bit of a background on the different denominations um, i just wanted to look briefly at some of the the tools which might help your church to move in this direction um, obviously, I've no idea who's watching this, uh, this broadcast, so some of you may be very familiar with these and some of you less so. So please forgive me if, you've, if, if this is old hat, but I hope there'll be something for you to take away. So the first tool, and I think the, the key one that I would want to encourage you to have a look at is EcoChurch. This is a, a toolkit for churches to, um, to basically do a sort of audit of their church life in terms of its, uh, your, your responsibility towards the environment. Um, it's, it's free to use, it's available online, it's run and hosted by Arosha UK, uh, Climate Stewards that I work for is part of the Arosha family, but this is an Arosha UK project. If you're in Scotland, there is a similar scheme called Eco Congregation. Um, so take a look at the website. Just to warn you, if you do, Eco Church, given because of the current crisis, has had to put some staff on furlough. And currently they are not accepting new registrations for churches. So you're, you're, if you're already registered as a church, you can continue to work on your survey, which is online. 
but if you wanted to sign up for the first time at the moment you can't do that but please don't give up all the resources are there the questionnaires there the survey is there so you can have a really good look and you can do much of the work you just can't actually register at the moment they're planning to be back online i think in july so this is eco church it's essentially at the heart is this survey of church life which has five categories first one is worship and teaching so what is the church uh, teaching in terms of how, how much is it communicating creation care and care for the environment in and from the front in the in the sermons in the small groups in the children's work youth work um, in your newsletter all that kind of stuff uh, what about the songs you sing are they um, do they do they reflect God's love for for the world in the, in, in what we're singing how we worship um, managing church buildings clearly that's a, a very practical question about whether and it may be about energy procurement it may be about big big expensive bits of um, infrastructure but it may also be things like coffee cups and washing up and compost and things like that the church land again not not every church has land but if you have have church land how do you look after it are you thinking about biodiversity and then community and global engagement so this is about sort of spreading the word this is about engaging beyond the borders of the church um, how, how much are we are we campaigning? How much are we joining local groups? How much are we working together with other local groups on environmental issues? And finally, lifestyle, which in perhaps is the most significant of all. If, if every church member goes home and starts putting some of these things into practice, then that will obviously have a much bigger knock-on effect. So those are the five areas. That's the worship. Are we, are we, are we including, are we referring to creation care throughout all that we do? Are we looking at the Bible through a through a, a green lens, as it were. Do we really hear what God's saying about um, caring for the world? Um, are we doing practical things in, in terms of our church buildings, in terms of reducing our energy consumption, um, being more efficient about the way we use energy and other resources? Are we looking after church land? That might be allotments, it might be building bug hotels, engaging with children, all sorts of things we can use our land for. Are we engaging with the society around us? Hope for the Future, if you haven't come across them, they're a great organisation, a Christian organisation, um, equipping churches to um, engage with their local MP around climate change. Uh, they've got a re really good website and they run webinars and training sessions and, and have resources on engaging with your MP. Um, Tier Fund have just launched a new campaign called Rebooting, which is all about the green recovery. So this is another way that churches can engage with uh, are, are the wider community on these issues and then lifestyle I've said it before but there are 101 things many of you will be doing these already but there are lots and lots of ways in which we can encourage each other to go home and be good stewards of the environment uh, beyond uh, the Sunday morning service so Eco Church has a lot of resources on its website that you can you can access they're free to use and there's a, a, a system of awards so you can get a bronze a silver or a gold award and currently uh, there are, i'm told there are 528 bronze awarded churches 217 silver and 11 gold across the country uh, of all denominations so that's that's the eco church and there are about nearly 3,000 churches registered on the eco church scheme now out of i think about 50,000 in the country so there's a long way to go 
EcoTouch has a sort of higher level thing, which is called EcoDiocese. So this is a bigger, a bigger. This is about you know getting whole dioceses to work together. This again is the Anglican Church, but it's not just dioceses, dioceses, uh, the Methodist Church circuits, the URC synods. They've all got uh, a similar um, schemes which encourage them to to collectively sign up for EcoChurch. These are the criteria that they are looking at to award. An ecodiocese award. You probably can't see that list on the right hand side but <clears throat> that's a list of all the UK dioceses and the ones with a little leaf beside them have been awarded a bronze award. So I think there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, bronze ecodioceses and it's about the percentage of churches already signed up for the for the award, another criteria that they look for. And then the ones with the blue ticks are, are dioceses which have, have signed up but not got much further. And I think I mentioned if you're in Scotland, Eco Congregation Scotland is the equivalent. CAFOD have a scheme called Lift Simply for Catholic Churches, which is a, a similar award a scheme, probably less a less formalised award scheme, but it's about encouraging churches to engage with a green, uh, greener agenda. Again, if you're an Anglican, the Anglican Church has recently um, launched what they call the energy footprint tool this is part of the parish return system so from this year onwards from now uh, your vicar or your treasurer will be obliged to fill in a form of telling the central church of england about your finances and about your attendance there's a third section now which is about energy use this is in order that the church of england can get a real broad picture of the sort of baseline where are we at at the moment um, and this is a measure of energy consumption in churches. So that's a, a mandatory requirement or pretty much mandatory from now onwards. And finally, um, Climate Stewards, we have just launched a, an online tool called 360 Carbon. If you're familiar with our individual carbon calculator, this is a similar thing, but it's on a bigger scale. So this is, this is a way of a church congregation together looking at its carbon footprint. Um, as you can see, it's got a number of categories um, sorry, this isn't a lie. This is just a slide. I can't click around it, but it's got uh, questions about your energy use, about transport for the church, that's both, both staff and congregation, about food, about expenditure and about waste and water. And having completed all of that, uh, it then gives you a picture of your carbon footprint um, and how it's broken down. There's a lot more information in there, but that's just a quick um, demonstration of what, what information you'll get out. That's free to use. It's uh, 360carbon.org and, and if a church signs up for it uh, year on year, you will then get a comparison of how your carbon footprint is compared to last year. It works with the Anglican Church's energy footprinting tool so that if you've completed one, it will automatically complete the other and vice versa. Having done all that, uh, going back to thinking back to that very first graph, when we get to 2030, um, I, my, the understanding is that churches will have to consider what, what they do about the emissions that they cannot reduce. Uh, Climate Stewards is one of many um, um, organisations that offers carbon offsetting, which enables churches to, or anybody, to um, support projects which mitigate CO2. So, so either things like tree planting, which take CO2 out of the atmosphere, or energy efficiency schemes, um, renewable energy, which reduce emissions in the first place. So that kind of squares the circle effectively. So those are a few tools I wanted to tell you about. And finally, my last slide, um, James will be pleased to see this, um, Climate Sunday. So um, 
we together and many others, all the CTBI is working on a project called Climate Sunday, which I think I'm going to stop now and I'll leave James to tell us about it perhaps later, because I think I've gone on long enough. Thank you. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, Caroline, for, for, for sharing there. Um, and now I'd like to um, introduce James Buchanan. Um, and James is going to talk tonight about 2020, a year to choose the future, um, with a particular focus on um, divestment from fossil fuels and investment into clean alternatives, um, along with the need for a green recovery. James is joined um, with us tonight from Operation Noah, where he's the Bright Now campaign manager. Operation Noah are a Christian climate change charity, which are also a part of CTBI's Environmental Issues Network. Um, and they uh, campaign um, for churches to divest from fossil fuel companies uh, and invest in clean alternatives. Previously, James has worked for the Church of England on the pilgrimage to Paris. Um, ahead of the UN climate talks in 2015. And he's also held previous roles with Christian Aid and CAFOD. Now, after James's talk, we'll move on to questions. So just uh, again, to encourage everyone who's joined us tonight, please jot those down. Um, you can click on the Q&A button um, that you'll see as part of Zoom. Or if you're watching us on Facebook, you can type those into the comment box below the video uh, and we'll get to as many of your questions as we can um, after James shares. So I'll, I'll pass over to you now. Thank you. Thank you, James, uh, for uh, inviting me to speak this evening and good evening, everyone. Um, it's uh, great to speak with you all this evening. And um, yeah, very glad to follow Caroline. And as James mentioned, uh, we, we both uh, ended up in uh, Paris uh, at the end of uh, a pilgrimage. Uh, Caroline, uh, as she said, cycled with a group um, to Paris and uh, and I was with a group of uh, 30 or 40 of us who, uh, who walked from London to Paris uh, ahead of the UN climate talks. And um, as James said, I work for Operation NOAA, uh, which is a Christian climate change charity which uh, works with the church to um, inspire action on the climate crisis. Um, Operation NOAA was founded by um, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland and um, Green Christian in 2004. Um, so I'm, I'm particularly happy to join with you all this evening. So I'm going to uh, share my screen with you now and hopefully you'll be able to see the presentation. So at Operation NOAA, we launched the Bright Now campaign in 2013, which calls on UK churches to divest from fossil fuels and invest in clean alternatives, uh, as, as James said. Um, so clean alternatives such as renewable energy, energy efficiency, and other clean technologies. Um, several churches in Britain and Ireland have been at the forefront of uh, this issue. Um, Quakers in Britain, the Church of Ireland, and the United Reformed Church have all fully divested from fossil fuels. And some others have taken steps towards divestment, and I'll speak more about that later. During the um, first um, few months of 2020, as you'll all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed everything. And responding to the health crisis and the human tragedy that has unfolded has rightly become the central priority of governments and societies. There are some important lessons that we can learn from our experience of the last few months, including our interconnectedness and our dependence on each other and the natural world. Now we'd anticipated at the start of 2020 that it would be a crucial year on the climate crisis 
as Caroline said, as a result of the UN climate talks, COP26, coming to the UK. The year 2020 has taken on a new significance as a year of stark choice. We're still facing a climate emergency and the decisions we make now will determine whether we can bend the emissions curve and will affect the future of humanity and of the planet for thousands of years. Cristiano Figueres, the um, former UN climate chief, um, uh, said that recovery packages designed and implemented by governments to rescue the global economy could rise as high as $20 trillion over the next 18 months. And she's added, as you can see here, that whether investments are channeled into high carbon industries or towards clean technologies is the most important decision that we'll make about the climate crisis. Um, Oper Operation NOAA, we're among um, more than 400 environmental groups that have been urging uh, governments and the international community to adopt the principles for a just recovery from COVID-19. So it is vitally important for churches to lobby our governments on this issue. And at the same time, the prophetic voice of the church will be heard most clearly when it takes action to remove investments in fossil fuels and increases investments in the clean technologies of the future. The global divestment movement has uh, grown rapidly in recent years. There are now more than 1,200 institutions with a combined $14 trillion of assets under management that have made divestment commitments, uh, with churches and other faith organisations at the forefront, uh, representing 32% uh, of all the institutions that have made divestment commitments. As many of you will be aware, uh, several UK churches are currently pursuing shareholder engagement with fossil fuel companies. While we recognise the good intentions of those pursuing engagement, we consider this very unlikely to succeed for the following reasons. The first is that the oil and gas industry is planning to spend nearly $5 trillion on exploration and extraction of new fossil fuel reserves in the next decade, none of which is compatible with a Paris Agreement. Um, we know that the vast majority of fossil, known fossil fuel reserves must remain in the ground if we're going to meet the, um, the Paris Climate Agreement. That's what the scientists are saying, um, and that's what uh, faith leaders like Pope Francis have said, and uh, financial um, leaders like Mark Carney as well. You may have heard earlier this year that some major oil companies, including Shell and BP, have announced um, a non-binding ambition to reach net zero emissions by 2050. However, at the same time, they plan to significantly increase production of oil and gas in the next decade um, by 38% in the case of Shell and by 20% in the case of BP. These two things are not compatible. And at the same time, they're also spending huge sums on lobbying against climate action. Um, last year, Influence Map uh, published a very good report which showed that um, the five largest um, publicly listed oil and gas companies were spending $200 million per year to block, control and delay climate policies. And you would really be forgiven for thinking from their advertising that companies such as Shell and BP are on the way to becoming renewable energy companies. Yet in 2019, major oil and gas companies spent an average of just 3% on low carbon technologies. 
And that means that 97% of their expenditure is going towards fossil fuels. And it was for these reasons uh, that after several years of engagement with, with fossil fuel companies, the United Reformed Church voted unanimously to divest from fossil fuels last year. And they decided that enough was enough. And following the vote to divest, the United Reformed Church approached their fund management company, CCLA, to ask if they would launch, uh, if offer them a fossil free fund. Um, during the summer last year, we learned that uh, CCLA's Charities Ethical Investment Fund would be fossil free by the 1st of December. This fund is available to local churches of all denominations, uh, dioceses and equivalents, and uh, charities that no longer wish to invest in fossil fuels. And I should add that uh, various other fossil free funds are available. Last week, the um, Central Finance Board of the Methodist Church announced that it had divested from BP and Total, um, two European oil companies, um, but uh, decided to continue investing in four other oil and gas companies, Shell, Repsol, a Spanish oil company, Eni, an Italian oil company, and Equinor, which is a Norwegian company. Now, in 2017, the Methodist Conference um, voted for divestment by 2020 from any oil and gas companies whose business investment plans are not aligned with the Paris Agreement target uh, of a global temperature rise well below two degrees. Um, here you can, in the photo, you can see people voting for that motion. Now, in order to implement this resolution, the Central Finance Board of the Methodist Church must now fully divest from all oil and gas companies, since no oil and gas companies have aligned their business investment plans with the Paris Agreement. Um, that, that's a conclusion that various groups have, have, have made, including the Transition Pathway Initiative, which is something supported by the um, Church of England and the Methodist Church, um, as well as Carbon Tracker, which is a really well-respected uh, think tank in this area. But we're currently working with a group of Methodists to build momentum for divestment ahead of the Methodist Conference later this month, and we're very glad to hear from any um, Methodists following this webinar who are interested in finding out more. I wanted to give you a quick snapshot of where some of the different churches are with, uh, on the divestment issue, um, in case you're interested in learning about your own uh, denominations. Um, so as I said before, uh, the Quakers in Britain, Church of Ireland and the United Reformed Church are leading the way and have all fully divested from fossil fuels. Um, in the Catholic Church, um, this came from our report, which was published last month. Um, since the report was published, a third Catholic diocese has uh, divested from fossil fuels but there are still um, there are 22 dioceses in total so there's still quite a number of dioceses in England and Wales and also in Scotland um, that are yet to divest from fossil fuels. Um, in the case of the Methodist Church and the Church of England both of them have said that they would divest from oil companies whose business plans are not aligned with the Paris Agreement targets by a particular date. In the case of the Methodist Church it's 2020, in the case of the Church of England uh, at General Synod a couple of years ago, um, Synod members voted uh, to start divestment in 2020 from oil companies that are not taking seriously their responsibilities in the transition to a low carbon economy. I think we would ask which of the oil companies are taking their responsibility seriously at this point, um, and that they would complete divestment by 2023 from oil and gas companies uh, not aligned with the Paris Agreement target. And in some of those other churches, the Church in Wales, the Church of Scotland and the Scottish Episcopal Church, 
um, there have been recommendations from church bodies that those churches should divest from fossil fuels for ethical reasons. We believe that those recommendations need to be followed through as a matter of urgency. And um, the Baptist Union so far has divested from coal and tar sands. And again, um, it's also time for the Baptist Union to fully divest from fossil fuels. I'm going to um, end by just sharing a couple of things that you personally can do. Um, we would really um, uh, welcome your support for divestment within your church denomination. So please do get in touch if you're interested in learning more about that. Could your local church make a commitment to divest from fossil fuels and urge your national and regional church structures to do the same? This is a really powerful action that your church can take in response to the climate emergency, ensuring that investments are shifted out of the problem and into the solution. And even if your church doesn't currently hold fossil fuel investments, it can make a powerful statement by pledging not to invest in fossil fuels in the future. In this picture, you can see um, a group at uh, Ivy Bridge Methodist Church um, who um, pledged to divest their fossil fuel investments uh, earlier this year uh, as part of um, uh, a joint divestment announcement that we organised called the Epiphany Declaration uh, for Fossil Free Churches. And we also organised a global divestment announcement last month, which you might have heard about, with the Global Classic Climate Movement, the World Council of Churches, Green Anglicans and Green Faith, uh, in which uh, 42 institutions from 14 countries participated. And we'll be coordinating a similar announcement with some of those groups in the autumn, and we'd be delighted if uh, some of your churches or faith organisations were interested in being involved. And here you can see it got um, some really good coverage uh, last month in the, the Telegraph, um, New York Times and Vatican News, among others. And um, finally, we published a report last month entitled Church Investments in Major Oil Companies, Paris Compliant or Paris Defiant. Um, more information about that can be found out on the um, Right Now website, uh, which is brightnow.org.uk. Um, and we're also, uh, if it's not too much, two webinars in two days, we're organising a webinar tomorrow. Uh, which would be very welcome to join if you're interested, um, specifically on this report, and we'll have a number of guest speakers uh, from different church denominations. Uh, more details of that can be found on the Operation Noah website. I'd like to just end with a quote from uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who said, divestment will send a positive and hopeful message to the people of this country and to those in vulnerable communities across the globe who will be most immediately affected by climate-related disasters. So thank you very much. I'm going to hand back over to James again. Excellent. Well, thank you, James. And um, we've had a number of questions come in from uh, those watching this evening. Uh, so thank you for everyone who's submitted those. Uh, and to start with, uh, I think it's a it's a really practical question. Um, one for for yourself, Caroline, if, if you're happy to answer this one. Um, and this is from Elaine Ryder. If, if the urgent thing is a need to change an oil boiler um, in a church uh, setting um, in a rural area where there is not mains gas available, what would you recommend as an alternative uh, that, that, that a church could consider in that situation? Gosh, <laughs> these are the kind of questions we get a lot in the Diocese of Bath and Wells, which has a lot of rural churches. I think it's it's a really tricky question and, and I have to be completely honest we haven't got the answer yet we're working on this because 
in very especially in small rural churches um that the, the payback as it were uh in terms of changing investing in new technology um whether that's an air source heat pump or perhaps a biomass boiler those kinds of alternatives they're incredibly expensive and for most small churches they will be way out of their budget um, switching to any to, to electrical forms of heating is clearly the best option in terms of because then we can buy renew if we can't put panels on the roof we can buy renewable energy um, but the reality is that if you're in a small rural church with an oil boiler a more efficient oil boiler may be the solution um, uh, and electricity would be a longer term solution I mean, what we're trying to do in our diocese is to have um, is basically to get churches to at least start thinking okay when the boiler breaks down what will we do um, because I think for a lot of churches this is going to have to be a phased a phased thing but it's it's a huge challenge and, and, it, and it, it kind of highlights the fact that this is not a simple solution within the next 10 years because these are expensive investments to find alternative ways of heating and I am not a heating engineer so um, I would say I would suggest that the first thing to do is, is to go back to your own uh, denominational um, if that's Anglican it'll be your your DAC the, the diocesan advisory committee who deal with effectively planning consent listed building consent and, and all the practical things around churches um, because what what we are seeing is that DACs are rapidly coming to terms with this commitment they're having to come to terms with the fact that the national church has made these commitments and they are all um, working hard to to find solutions to these things but I, I'm afraid I don't have a simple answer to that question. Thank you. Um, another one for, for yourself Caroline um, and this is focused on uh, offsetting from a question from Les Parker. Um, many activists consider offsetting to be similar to climate indulgences, allowing the richer people to, in brackets, sin freely, paying for offsets rather than uh, cleaning up their act. Mm -hmm. What would your perspective on that be? That's <laughs> uh, so a common, common, um, common question. Um, yes, George Monbiot calls them papal indulgences or license to pollute, um, and we're very conscious of that. In our experience in climate stewards, and we've been doing this now for 12 years, um, people who offset are, ha have already begun to reduce. If, if you don't care, you don't offset. Um, it, it, this is the last resort, effectively. And certainly in climate stewards, our sort of strap line is to reduce what you can and offset the rest. And in that graph that I showed at the beginning of the Anglican church with a 60 ton church going down to the 20 ton church that's what everybody's driving at is reduce 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 spend your money on investment in reductions but there will always there will inevitably be or nearly always be uh, not always but in many cases there will be a sort of um, a, sup, a, a remnant of, of carbon emissions which we can't reduce and then that's the time to invest in something which will remove which will effectively compensate for those emissions and that's what good offsetting should be i think um, certainly climate stewards we work with community-based groups church groups doing projects which bring multiple benefits so they're they're not just taking co2 to the atmosphere but they're also bringing local benefits to the communities who are first you know who are being hit first and worst by the impacts of climate change so adaptation helping them to adapt saving money improving health in terms of cook stoves, clean cooking, water filters. So they're bringing many benefits locally 
at the same time as removing carbon from the atmosphere. All right, excellent. Thank you. And a question for, for yourself, James. Um, this is from Paul Parker. Without the political will, most of the changes that we've touched on tonight would only scratch the surface of this issue. What do you feel the role of churches is in pressuring government and international bodies for change? I think churches have a really crucial role to play in um, pressuring governments and international bodies for change. And um, we've seen that happen at different moments. Um, in the past, I think uh, it was something, as Caroline said, around the time of the um, Paris Agreement, um, um, Christiana Figueres thanked the faith communities, uh, including the churches, for all the, um, um, the pressure that they have to create through their campaigning on this issue. Um, more recently, I think uh, there's been examples like um, the lobby of parliament last year, the time is now, which I'm sure many of you were involved with, and I know there's been similar lobbies in Scotland of the Scottish parliament. Um, I think it's really important for faith communities to be actively involved in those things, and um, and that has uh, that has happened. I think there's going to be um, a virtual lobby um, happening at the end of this month, which is being organised by the Climate Coalition, um, which I'm sure you'll be hearing more about very soon. Um, and it's, as I say, really important for churches to engage in those things. Um, I think when it comes to the um, the issue, um, I was referring to the um, um, the need for um, finance to to go into clean technologies um, as opposed to high polluting industries. I think that's a really crucial decision that a lot of governments are going to be making in the near future. Um, Christiana Figueres has said between the next three to 18 months a lot of those decisions are going to be made. Um, so now is really the time for churches and others to to speak out on this. Um, climate change is a justice issue and it's, it's really vital that churches make their voices heard on this. But in my view, um, the church will ha um, uh, the church's voice will be even more powerful and more um, um, uh, credible in many ways if, if it, as Caroline said, kind of gets its own house in order on this as well um, by divesting from fossil fuels and increasing investment in, in those clean technologies itself as well. Great. And a perfect follow-on question then for, for that point. Um, there will be many local congregations who... Um, don't directly hold stocks and shares um, as investments, but they do have deposit accounts uh, with banks or building societies. Um, how would those churches ensure that they're not um, unknowingly or unwittingly investing in fossil fuel funds? Um, and, and also another question on the same topic, um, how would an individual, uh, a private investor, um, find fossil free funds? I mean, I know we can't recommend particular funds here, but in terms of where people will go to look for those um, options. Very good question. Um, so one resource I would recommend to people, um, uh, particularly if you're looking for your church, um, we at Operation have produced a resource um, around three years ago now, but um, much of the information in it is still very current. Uh, it's called Divest Your Church, um, which you can find on, our, uh, on the Bright Now website. Um, that gives some examples of um, uh, fossil-free banks and also fossil-free funds that, um, that churches can look into. I mean, there have been some more developments since that was published. Um, as I mentioned, um, CCLA, which uh, manages investments for a lot of um, Church of England local churches and also churches in other denominations, have launched their Charities Ethical Investment Fund, which is fossil-free. Um, and uh, the Methodist Church... Um, 
um, a subsidiary of the Methodist Church called Epworth Investment Management um, recently has also launched uh, fossil-free funds. Um, the Methodist Church in total uh, manages around 1.4 billion um, pounds of uh, assets and um, in terms of the investments that have been um, put into that fossil free fund so far it's around 20 million pounds so it's quite a small proportion of those of those investments so from our perspective it's great that they've launched the fossil free funds but it isn't enough and um, and they actually need to divest the whole of that portfolio um, but if your local church is for example invested with um, the central finance board of the Methodist church uh, you could look into that Epworth fossil free fund and similarly um, if you're with CCLA, you could ask about their charities ethical investment funds. Um, as I say, there are various others out there. Um, I think it's fair to say if you are with a high street bank, um, um, such as HSBC and um, many of the others, chances are you are invested in fossil fuels. Um, uh, there are ethical banks, I think they're generally quite well known, and you'll see some of them in the um, Divestor Church Guide. And also, I, I recommend the, the likes of uh, Ethical Consumer magazine. Um, they've got a good website, some of it behind a paywall, but you can find some good information on there too. Um, building societies generally aren't invested in fossil fuels. They tend to invest in housing stocks. So as a result, um, I think it's fair to say that most building societies wouldn't invest in fossil fuels, but it is worth asking your bank or building society about that. Excellent. Thanks, James. Um, practical answers there um, for, for, for uh, both churches and individuals. Um, and Caroline, if I can put a question to you from... David Coleman, the uh, chaplain at Eco Congregation Scotland, um, he's asked what what would members of local churches do, or what could members of local churches do to ensure that prayer, worship, and preaching in their communities reflects and encourages their environmental commitment. Gosh, well, there are lots of of good resources out there. Um, I think, first of all, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, places like Arosha has got a really good website called At Your Service, where they've got a lot of resources there for prayer and worship and preaching. Uh, there's a website called, um, it's basically about preaching the lectionary uh, for churches which follow the lectionary uh, with environmental talks most weeks on that. Um, if you go to the Climate Stewards website, we have a page of resources there we try to pick up a lot of the useful resources for churches. Um, there's the John Ray Institute, uh, uh, which provides a lot of um, sort of more scientific papers. Um, being inspired, you know, just encourage, I think often traditionally we've had a sort of environment Sunday or a, a particular green Sunday. Some churches will do that and that's a good thing to do. But I think as, as, and many people on this call, I suspect if we're here that if we're here today, we're keen on this stuff. It's about encouraging our our teachers, our preachers, our leaders, our, our worship leaders, our Bible study leaders, um, to look at the Bible with a new through new eyes. I had a picture earlier on of my green Bible, uh, where there are something like two thousand two hundred and fifty references to to the environment, to the earth, the sea, the land, the water. Uh, the wind, uh, the rain, all sorts of stuff, which we tend to filter out often, I think, when we read the Bible. And, and, and when people are preaching about the Bible, they talk about often human, God and human relationship. And often that's the first one. And the next one is us and our neighbours. And often the bit about us and the earth is kind of skipped. And I think just re-reading the Bible without our sort of dark glasses on effectively is a really good way to start. Um, but there are good resources out there. Um, uh, and we can 
certainly at the, our, the Climate Stewards Resources page is a good place to start. Uh, Russia is a good place to start. Um, Eco, uh, Eco Church has good resources as well. Thank you. And um, a, a follow-up question uh, from uh, John Anderson regarding uh, churches which are off of the gas grid in terms of heating replacements. is uh, asked um, regarding the option of infrared electric heating potentially powered by renewables, um, That's a good idea, such as yeah. solar PV, um, or uh, obviously buying, buying green mm -hmm. energy to, to do that. Is that a solution that you would encourage churches in that scenario to, to explore? Yeah, I, I know of churches which have done that. Um, in fact, I live in a rural parish in Somerset and one or two of our churches have got those infrared things. I think they're getting better. Um, there are issues I know around the immediate heat so um you you always need to talk to your architect or surveyor about anything like that um they can cause cracking and you know sort of because there's a concentrated source of heat up on the wall sometimes that that causes issues and there are also visual issues some people they're quite they're visually more intrusive than some other forms of, of heat heating but they're definitely worth thinking about and it's a, and it's a very good point that I, I didn't mention earlier that that would be, enable you to switch relatively simply away from oil and onto an um green electricity. And it's worth mentioning in case people haven't heard that there are various um, renewable energy companies where you can buy green electricity, including, for example, again, with the, with the Church of England, they have parish buying, which is a sort of centralized buying system, has a green energy basket, which enables a church to choose renewable energy when they buy their electricity. Excellent. Um, and a question for you, James. Uh, this is from uh, Heffin Jones, a professional ecologist. And, and he says he's only too aware that um, changing church and our general way of life requires not just green approaches, but integration with economic and social aspects. Um, if we compartmentalize uh, these issues, um, you know, that could, that may not be the best approach. Should we not be integrating our, our approach? Um, wonder if you want to speak to that. That's a good question. I suppose on the um, yeah, certainly on, on the issue I'm working with, there's a lot of overlaps, I guess, between the um, environmental and the economic aspects. When you look at the um, the issue of divestment, you know, where investments go, um, yeah, um, and I think you know over time, um, you know, I think increasingly in the financial community, um, you know, the climate crisis is becoming uh, recognised as a threat to financial stability. And um, Mark Carney has said, said that, various others have as well. Um, but you're right, I mean, these things do need to be integrated. And um, similarly, with regard to social issues, I think, again, that's something which is um, being increasingly recognised when you're talking about solutions to the climate crisis. So um, uh, in Scotland, as James will know well, um, there's often um, discussions around the need for a just transition uh, from, from fossil fuels to um, uh, renewable energy and clean technologies because there are communities that have depended on fossil fuels in the past and, um, um, and there's need for government support to those communities. Um, for instance, uh, support to uh, develop some of those um, clean jobs that are needed in, in those areas um, and to, um, uh, to train people in, in, in those industries. So um, um, one of the key points um, I mentioned um, during my talk about the um, just recovery from COVID-19, which um, the just recovery principles that, um, that we at Operation NOAA and many others have signed onto. And one of those is to create resilience for future crises. 
by creating millions of decent jobs uh, that will help to power a just reco um, recovery and the transition for workers and communities to a zero carbon future. So I think, as I say, I think these things are being um, discussed a lot more and it is really, really crucial that we do you know, look at how these issues overlap and we look at the, um, yeah, the social impacts of what we're doing as well. Thanks, James. Um, and just to finish, I'll, I'll take this last question from Joe Hampton. Um, and, and Joe's asking if there's potential for a, a collective group um, that includes different denominations along with different groups, uh, such as Operation NOAA, so that Christians in the UK have one voice um, and have, a, a, I guess, a, a collective impact within society um, on, on this topic. And the CTBI's Environmental Issues Network um, is, is a collection of several denominations as well as uh, Christian environmental charities. And as a network, uh, this year we are launching uh, a project called Climate Sunday, uh, which actually launched on World Environment Day last Friday. And there's more information on that um, on the CTBI website as well as at climatesunday.org. And, and, and essentially the project uh, brings all, all of that incredible activity that's already happening um, into sort of one central voice um, in the run-up to COP26 next November. And it will allow churches, um, both local churches and denominations, to all collectively take action, make pledges, hold climate-focused services, um, and, and all of that action um, then presented essentially to help back up uh, asks and, and uh, campaigns around um, or in the lead up to COP26 uh, so that the church has a, a credible voice because you know the aim is that thousands of churches will have made pledges, made changes um, and incorporated the environmental messaging into a climate focused service. So um, I'd encourage you to have a look at climatesunday.org. You can sign up there to be kept up to date with more information and that uh, updates will also be coming out via CD, CTBI's uh, regular um, emails and, and on their website as well. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Joe. That's something that is uh, for this particular season in the run-up to COP26 where I think the church can have a, a big impact um, and really uh, bring some, uh, I, I guess, um, significant asks um, on behalf of the, the church collectively in the UK to call for bold and ambitious action uh, by the UK government as well as um, the, the COP conference. So um, we are now at half past eight and um, I'm sorry if we didn't manage to get to your question. There's a, there's a few that we didn't manage to get to tonight. Um, but uh, if any of those questions are pressing and you still like an answer, feel free to send those in uh, to our email address, climatesunday at ctbi.org.uk, and we'll do our best to get back to you, to you personally on there. Um, but I'd like to really give a big thanks to Caroline and James for giving up their time this evening uh, and, and sharing up their expertise um, on this topic. And just to give a little plug before we finish for CTBI's next webinar, which is um, on Wednesday next week, the 17th of June, from 7 till 8 p.m. And the topic next week is church, uh, Church's Refugee Network 
asylum and refugee matters in Europe in the realm of COVID-19. And I know that's certainly going to be an interesting topic and there are details at CTBI's website uh, where you can register and find out uh, more about the speakers and um, what's going to be focused on next Wednesday during that webinar. So thanks again for joining us um, and we hope you um, took away some uh, useful information tonight that, that you can take back to your church uh, or denomination um, and, uh, uh, and, and also link up with some of the other schemes that we mentioned around Eco Congregation Scotland, Eco Church and Live Simply for some next steps. So thanks again and uh, have a good evening everyone. Cheers. Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons licence.